We are continuing our study of the churches in Revelation. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, take it and turn to chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We've seen over the last few weeks that the Holy Spirit gave these words to seven literal first century churches that were in what was then called Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey. And these words that he gave to them were to both affirm them and to warn them about their spiritual condition. And that's helpful for us, 2017, as a way of assessment. What is our spiritual condition? What is our spiritual health? What is our ministry and our maturity and our witness? And then on a broader scale, uh, it's a means of assessment for us as a church, a church that stands for Jesus Christ, a church that is unwavering that, but how effective are we? How healthy are we? Uh, are we doing what we need to do in our calling to be the children of God, the sons and daughters, as we sang, to, to stand for Christ, to represent Him well, and to live holy lives? Now, so far we've studied the first two churches, Ephesus, which you see at the start of chapter 2, which was the passionless church, that's a church that had grew dull and indifferent in their relationship with the Lord. They had become unfaithful um, because they were um, taking the grace of God for granted. They weren't broken by the grace of God. They weren't grateful for the grace of God. And, and uh, the Spirit says, you left your first love. You've just kind of become dull and indifferent toward the Lord. So they were the passionless church. And last week we looked at the church in Smyrna, and the church in Smyrna was tested. They were being persecuted, they were being ostracized within that very uh, secular city, um, but they had stayed faithful. They were one of two churches that only got positive words from the Lord. They had stayed faithful in, in uh, their testing, and they had lived by the Spirit's power. Now this week, uh, we're in the last part of chapter 2, starting in verse 12, and we're looking at the church in Pergamum. And the issue that the church in Pergamum is being uh, addressed by the Spirit is, is so uh, unmistakably relevant to our time. It is so uh, definitively uh, applicable to our time that this study this morning, I believe, is going to be very challenging and it may be a little difficult. And we've got to kind of brace ourselves for that. In fact, we're going to pray in just a minute uh, that the Spirit will speak very boldly and very directly to us this morning. I want you to be praying for me. Uh, that this will not be my words in any way, but that the Holy Spirit will just speak to us and I'll just get out of the way. But we need to open our hearts and our minds this morning uh, very wide, remove any opinion and bias and, and any even defensiveness we might put up because the word of the Lord this morning is challenging. And I've been wrestling with, with how, to, how to teach it, hopefully not in my own strength and not by my own power. So let's pray, let's ask the Lord to, to really open up our hearts, and then we're going to study. Lord, we ask you this morning, now by your Spirit, to teach us. We pray that our hearts would be completely open, completely ready to receive your word. Lord, you've already worked in this service, and we've asked you to remove any barriers and any obstacles. We ask you again, not hearing the word this morning, not receiving the word with, with our opinion, our bias, our background, just the pure word of God being spoken to us. So Holy Spirit, you be the one to speak this morning. Move me completely out of the way. Don't let any word be my word this morning. Lord, we ask you to speak to us, to strengthen us, to encourage us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay? Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. You know that the word is called a sharpened two-edged sword that divides. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, verse 14, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, Pergamum was one of the churches that receives both commendation and condemnation. The Lord speaks negative and the Lord speaks positive to this church. And we're going to look at that, but let's establish the defining characteristic. Ephesus was the passionless church. Uh, we saw that Smyrna was the tested church. Pergamum was the compromised church. The compromised church. And the compromise that, that they had made was doctrinal. There was a doctrinal compromise. Instead of defending and standing firm for the word of God, they had allowed false teaching. They had allowed idolatry to, to creep into and infiltrate the body. And that not only confused many people, but it also was starting to become a stumbling block to faithful believers. Now, this is what happens when scripture and doctrine is negotiated. When scripture and doctrine are treated as subjected rather than the immutable fixed word of God and the fixed word of truth that the Bible is. And part of the reason that this had taken place uh, in the city of Pergamum, also known as Pergamus, so I'm going to interchange the two, uh, it had to do with some of the external influences that were in the city which actually should have made the church more determined and more steadfast to be doctrinally pure. But instead of doing that, they had gone the other way and they had started to compromise their convictions. Now, just by way of background, because I think it's always helpful to understand uh, what we're dealing with, Pergamos was a, was a beautiful city, about 15 miles from the Aegean Sea. At one point, it was owned by one of Alexander the Great's generals. So that will give you a little bit of time frame, uh, and it was known as a great uh, place of art and architecture. Beautiful city, had a huge amphitheater, and um, this, they, they were known actually throughout the world for having one of the most uh, huge, uh, one of the most huge, that's beautiful English, right? One of the largest libraries in the world. In fact, history shows that they had 200,000 books, think about that, 200,000 books that Antony had given to Cleopatra, which is amazing because every book was um, handwritten and copied on papyrus uh, that had come from the Nile. Now, why does that matter? Well, later in history, 
the king of Pergamos had become so impressed with the size of the library that he tried to to grab Alexander the Great's librarian from Alexandria and bring him to Pergamos. But that ticked off Ptolemy. You're going, I had this in history class in eighth grade. Why are you doing this again? That ticked off Ptolemy, who was the, the ruler of the southern part of Egypt, and he cut off the supply of papyrus because papyrus came from the Nile. So he said, no more papyrus. That led people to use the skins of animals to write. And the skins of animals became known as parchment or sheepskin. Now that has absolutely nothing to do with this Bible study, but it's a fun little fact, right? You can take that to work tomorrow and impress your coworkers. I know where parchment came from because Ptolemy cut off the papyrus and people are going to go, what is wrong with you? Like seriously. So there's some historical record here. This was a place of learning. It was a place of art. It was a place of architecture. It was a place where people loved books. And in Pergamon, now, the spirit, though, is, is referring to the city in a different way. In fact, if you look at verse 13, he says, this is the city where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Now, we know it wasn't the devil's literal home. He didn't have a house on, on Main Street. But the meaning is, this is a place where he was being honored and where he had a strong influence. And part of the reason of that is there were four huge temples in the city. And these temples were each dedicated to a Greek or Roman god. One of the temples was to Zeus, the head of all the Greek gods. One of the temples was to Diosthenes. He was the god of wine and drama. One was to Athena. She was the god of wisdom in art and war. And one was to Asclepius. Well, I pronounced that name wrong. Asclepius. Everybody say that together. No, don't. That's right. Asclepius. I think that's right. You don't know if it isn't. He was the god of healing. And his temple actually had a hospital and a medical university. So there are these four huge temples to Zeus and Diosthenes and Athena and the other guy. And, and those temples were the heart of the city. Now also in the city were one of the seven wonders of the world. And this was a huge statue to Zeus and an altar to him that was the largest altar in the world. It was 90 by 90 by 40 feet high. That's roughly the size of this room. So there's a huge altar to Zeus. And this may be, when we look back at the text, what the Spirit is referring to when he says Satan's throne. Because sacrifices were being made on that altar to Zeus. So these huge structures, these four temples, the statue to Zeus, this huge altar to Zeus, are, are dominating the city of Pergamos. And the Christians there are surrounded by this idolatry. Now, to their credit, if you look back at the text, you see that they were doing some things very well. In, in verse 13, the Lord commends them. You held fast my name. You didn't deny my faith, even when Antipas, Antipas, boy, I'm struggling this morning, was persecuted. Antipas was one of the early Christian martyrs. 
he was killed because he would not yield to the government when it said, you have to renounce your faith. Antipas said, not going to do that. So he was killed. And God holds him up and says, when Antipas was killed, you guys didn't bail on me. You hung with me, you defended my name, and you didn't deny your faith. So the Lord is really encouraging the believers and affirming them and saying, despite the strong pressure to deny Christ, you remained faithful. But the devil doesn't always attack that overtly against us, right? He doesn't always say, well, the whole temptation that you're going to have is whether to deny your faith or not. Often, usually, he uses much more subtle methods to kind of soften and weaken our convictions. So we're not facing tomorrow of having to outright deny Jesus. But we may not be having to steadfastly defend him either. And that's what happened in Pergamos. They had compromised doctrinally, and they had compromised, according to the text, in two ways. Verse 14, first of all, some were holding to and advancing the teaching of Balaam. Now, I'm really going to take you back here, so you've got to stay with me for 90 seconds, okay? This goes back to Numbers 22. Balaam defied the word of God. Because he was told by the king of Moab, a man named Balak, you see his name there. He said, I want you to curse Israel. And as Balaam goes to kind of work with Balak, the Lord sends an angel to oppose him and block his path. And when Balaam still wouldn't yield to the angel, and you remember this story from Sunday school as a kid, the Lord made his donkey talk some sense to him. Remember that story? So Balaam, you would think when your donkey talks to you and there's an angel of the Lord standing there trying to block your path, you would think that would probably be enough, right? If my dog started talking to me today and said, the Lord wants you to stop doing what you're doing, I would probably stop. And knowing my dog, he would be one that would talk. But Balaam didn't. Instead of saying no to Balak, he continued to help him. And instead of just cursing Israel with his mouth and declaring a curse on the nation. Instead, he kind of worked, it did a workaround, and he caused Israel to bring curse on itself by setting up prostitutes to corrupt the Jewish men. It's a strange story. And yet, it's important that we understand, you may say, well, that has no application in my life whatsoever today, but it does. Because it highlights what was happening in Pergamum. That some Christians were resisting, listen now, and changing the word of God to fit their own desires and pleasures. Instead of saying, we will not compromise the word of God, we will not change the word of God, we will not adapt the word of God, we will not consider the word of God to be subjective. Instead, they said, well, it's kind of up for grabs, open to some interpretation. I think we could slide a little bit here and work around that a little bit because we have some desires and we have some pleasures and, and we want to say, Scripture is not strong enough on that. That's the first problem. Second problem is in verse 15. Some of the people in Pergamum were accepting what the Nicolaitans taught. Now, just in one sentence, that was a, a humanistic, hedonistic teaching that centered around sex. So the Spirit of God is calling out some of the people in the church in Pergamos 
for, for distorting the word of God and then for being tolerant of lust and adultery and participation in sexual sin. Now, unfortunately, this warning from the Spirit is far too applicable for the church in 2017. And there are two areas, I believe, where there has been a substantial decline in spiritual maturity and the effectiveness of our ministry because of doctrinal and moral compromise. Now, we're going to look at the second one next week in depth when we look at the church in Thyatira. So this morning, I'd like us just to focus on the escalating danger of doctrinal compromise. The enemy knows that he can't steal our salvation. How many know that's true and say amen to that? He cannot steal our salvation. The enemy cannot defeat the Lord. He's already been defeated. His fate is already settled. It will not change. And yet, until that day, he is using the same strategy that he used in Genesis 3. He's using the same strategy that he used in Revelation 2. And he is using that strategy today. And the strategy is corruption through compromise. And the primary way he is trying to do that in 2017 is to convince us to adapt the Bible to our personal desires. Now, there are two major problems that have become normal over the last 30 years, especially in the American church. The first one is a de-emphasis on using the Bible to teach the whole counsel of God. The second problem is a distortion of the literal message of the word when it is taught. Now, this problem is not in all churches, and praise the Lord this morning for faithful pastors and teachers who still love the Word, still study the Word, still teach the Word, for churches that value the Word of God and stand the Word of God. Praise the Lord for that this morning. But this is a very widespread problem, especially with megachurches. Not all megachurches, please hear me this morning. But, but churches, especially that have embraced the church growth philosophy that you do whatever you take to bring people in. Now, there's no question that cultural pressure has influenced this. But we need to be very clear that the church has absolutely no excuse for compromising the Word of God. The church has no excuse. Our pressure isn't any worse than what the apostles faced. Our pressure isn't any worse than the churches in Revelation faith faced. They certainly aren't as bad as what believers in other countries are facing this morning. The bottom line is that we have done this to ourselves. We've been largely okay with the compromise because we've accepted the enemy's lie that doing so is the key to attracting people. And here's the problem. That has not been borne out in growth of churches. It has not been borne out in the impact of the church. And it certainly has not been borne out in deeper discipleship. If anything, the church of Jesus Christ is less influential, more marginalized, and more shallow spiritually. And that's a problem. Because culture is becoming much more extreme in terms of its opposition to God. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. How do we know this is happening? How do, you, how do we know this isn't just my opinion this morning? 
Well, the first example we have is the increased acceptance of heretical teaching. And I know that's a strong word, and I struggled with it and asked the Lord to affirm that. But there is an increased acceptance of heretical teaching. We've got to call it what it is. When the pastor of the largest church in this country will not talk about sin or repentance or atonement or Jesus or even use the Bible to preach, we cannot defend that teaching as God's word because the Bible is all about those doctrines. When statements are made that obeying God is not for God, this is a quote, but for ourselves because God wants you to be happy. And when you come to church and worship him, you aren't doing it for God. There's a newsflash. I didn't know that this morning. When you worship him, you aren't doing it for him. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. That is not just a, a man said or misunderstanding. That's a lie. When the central message is that God wants you to be rich. So, quote, if you want success and wisdom and to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. Unquote. That, that is, there, there isn't a verse in Scripture that backs it up, and it actually contradicts most of the New Testament, not to mention it's obviously false, because if all I have to do is declare I want to be a billionaire, I want to be a billionaire. Where's my money? As one pastor said in response, in more primitive times, they burned heretics at the stake. Now we greet the blasphemers with applause and multi-million dollar book deals. Tens of thousands of people attend. Millions watch on TV. And if you ask the average person on the street who the most well-known pastor in America is, they'll name that person. But listen, it goes way beyond prosperity preachers. One of the most prominent female speakers, many of you listen to her, teaches false doctrine. She says that on the cross, Jesus stopped being the son of God because he literally became sin. And then he went to hell, not to declare victory over sin, but to be tortured for three days and three nights by the devil and his demons as punishment for our sins. She also says that her teachings require a special revelation from God to understand because they aren't written in the Bible. And she says, quote, the Bible can't even find a way to explain this. There are no words to explain what I'm telling you. I've got to just trust God that he's putting it into your spirit like he put it into mine. That is a direct contradiction of scripture, and it is heresy. And there are too many other examples to cite teaching that there are many ways to heaven, saying that we worship the same God as other religions, integrating secular lifestyle habits into ministry to try to connect with people, advocating homosexual marriage, even among church leaders. The pastors are supposed to be CEOs and follow business models, and on and on and on it goes. It is an acceptance of heretical teaching. And a lot of this is driven by a second compromise. And the second compromise is accepting, excuse me, adapting the Bible to make us feel better. Adapting the Bible to make us feel better. Now let me step on some toes. You're like, my toes already hurt. Okay. The most popular new book among Christians in the last 10 years 
It sold 7 million copies. It's been handed out in thousands of churches, and now it's made into a movie that's released this weekend. It advances the concept that the theology of the Bible does not matter because it is about what makes us feel better and what makes it easier for us to understand and accept God on our terms. So in an attempt to help people understand why God allows suffering, the book diminishes God and teaches a man-centered concept of God that denies Scripture. Now, a lot of people, and I've read a lot of articles about this, say, well, you're making too big a deal of it because the book is only figurative. But that is a specious argument. And to prove that, all we have to do is look at Jesus. When Jesus told parables, those were figurative accounts to prove a spiritual truth. But there will not find one parable in Scripture where Jesus contradicted his word, where he changed the character of God, where he denied salvation through him alone, where he elevated man to make us feel better. So we have no business paying attention to something that does. If Jesus didn't do it, I don't want to do it. And you say, all right, Paul, come on, you're being too extreme. Let me just give you a couple of the principles that this book teaches. It says God is only loving, and he never judges people for their sins. God submits to human will and human choices. Everyone makes it to heaven, and there isn't a literal hell. It doesn't matter which way you get to God, because there are many paths. And besides, God will forgive all of humanity, whether they repent or not. Now, I'll admit to you, that's much easier theology than the Bible teaches. And that's why people are accepting it so readily, because there's no sin, there's no accountability, there's no consequence, and God isn't really holy because he doesn't have any standards, and we can do whatever we want. You know what that is? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a deconstruction of the holiness and transcendence of God. That's saying God is only unconditional love, period. He's not holy. He doesn't demand anything. We don't have to fit anything. We don't have to accept Jesus because everybody's just going to go to heaven. It's half of God in the Bible. And as one pastor said, half of God is not God at all. So we have these two problems, especially in the American church. We've, we've increasingly accepted heretical teaching, and we've started to adapt the Bible to make us feel better. And that is a pluralistic, non-biblical mindset that, that has crept into evangelicalism because of a decision that our feelings, our desires, and our needs are far more important than doctrinal integrity. So we read paraphrases of the Bible that don't have any integrity of the original language. But because they're easier for us to read, what does it matter? It's all about us. And we soften our conviction on what the Bible teaches because we don't want to be seen as harsh or, or narrow or PC. So what the Lord clearly names as sin, and that word is used in the Bible many times, what, what the Lord calls sin now that becomes a weakness and a lifestyle choice or whatever term we want to call it. We don't, we don't want to offend anybody. We just want people to come and drink coffee and, and, and be happy because it's all about our happiness. We can't offend anybody. You know what Galatians says? It says the gospel is an offense to many. The gospel is an offense to many. 
And if we're really teaching the word and sharing the word and living by the word, here's the reality. Many people are going to oppose us. Many people are going to be offended by us. Why? Because Jesus is offensive to many people. Darkness hates light, Scripture says. And Jesus is the light of the world, which means many people will reject the gospel because they don't want to admit that they're sinners. They don't want to repent of their sin. They don't want to trust him. They don't want to surrender their lives to him. So if we are really adhering to Scripture, please hear this carefully. If we are really adhering to Scripture, we are going to offend people. I've probably offended some people in this room this morning. Because that's what the word does. But here's very, very, very important distinction. The offense cannot be, listen now, because we are judgmental or harsh or arrogant. Because we say, I'm saved and you're not. I know scripture and you don't. And I'm just going to preach Jesus and you're going to be offended and I don't care. No, 2 Corinthians 5 says, the love of God constrains us to share the gospel and to tell people about Jesus Christ so they can experience his love and his mercy and his grace like we have. So we're to speak the truth, Colossians says, in love. Speak the truth in love, not antagonistically, not arrogantly, not with attitude, that's not how you trusted Christ. When I trusted Christ in 1974, it's not because somebody arrogantly and, and, and antagonistically spoke truth to me and I said, oh, well, that's good. That really offends me. It was because I heard about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the adoption of God and the promise of God. If we come across, and the church has hurt itself, if we come across as cocky or as mean, we're going to lose people. That's why the message must always be centered on Jesus. On the love of God shown through Jesus. On the mercy of God shown through Jesus' blood and his sacrifice on the victory of God over sin and death shown by Jesus' resurrection, on his offer of forgiveness that Jesus extends to every single person who's ever lived, on the promise of adoption that Jesus fulfills in Romans chapter 8, and on eternal life forever with him. We have to be careful that we don't step into heresy and step into adapting the Bible and making it subjective. But we also have to be careful that we don't come across as harsh and judgmental and narrow and nasty because we're angry in some way that people don't know the Lord. Remember our study Thursday night? If you didn't hear it, listen to it. The compassion of Jesus. Scripture again says Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. When he saw the two blind beggars, he was moved with compassion. When he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with compassion. Listen, I need more compassion for the world. 
I need more compassion for people that do not yet know Jesus Christ. I need a greater heart, a greater brokenness, a greater love, a greater humility, a greater desire that everybody will know the truth that we know. So we have to be biblically centered, doctrinally uncompromising, but driven, driven, driven by love. And if people see that as intolerant, their problem is not with us. Their problem is with Jesus. Now, let's finish. How do we prevent falling into the compromise of Pergamos? How do do we prevent falling into this trap? Well, I want to just give you a couple minutes, a few simple action steps, okay? Write these down. Few simple action steps. Number one, know and defend the literal word of God. Know and defend the literal word of God. The Bible is inerrant and it is our complete rule for life. It is not subjective and it is not a suggestion. It's the perfect word of God and we are called to obey it. The Bible says, hold fast to sound doctrine. So you and I need to be students of the word. We need to value the word. We need to handle this precious book carefully, not just throw it on the floor of the car, not put it in a backpack where it gets crumpled, not not treat it with disrespect, not neglect it throughout the week. We need to value it, eat it up, take it into our hearts, hold on to its integrity and learn theology. On our website is our doctrinal statement as a church. I also printed some copies this morning. They're at the Welcome Center. Every doctrine of this church has about 10 verses with it. If you want to start to learn theology, you want to start to take that in, so we will resist anything that contradicts the Word of God, then take one of those sheets today and start going through. Each day, take one facet of our theology which is right according to the Bible. There's nothing there of us. It's all biblical. Take, take one every day, the doctrine of God, and look at all the verses, research them, take notes on them. What a great Bible study would be. Probably take you 45 minutes and learn the doctrine of God, then the doctrine of Jesus, then the doctrine of the Spirit, then the doctrine of salvation, then the doctrine of eschatology. All these things that we should know backwards and forwards. People died, listen now, people died to make sure the word remained pure. You ever go to Orlando, go to the, uh, to the what's it called, the, the uh, Jerusalem experience? What's it called, kids? I can't remember. Holy Land experience. Don't spend $140 at Disney. Go to the Holy Land experience. They have a room, a, a building. It's called the Scriptorium. And all through that are copies of the Bible from Old Testament, uh, from New Testament times all the way up today. And some of the Bibles actually have blood stains where the person who was holding onto that Bible was martyred for their faith and their blood poured out on the Bible. People died for the book in our hands. Today, people are being killed just for holding a Bible. We can't ever treat this book flippantly, and we certainly can't change its teaching. Sin and judgment and hell are real. And so are salvation, forgiveness, and heaven.
The blood of Jesus is what saves us, and we are unequivocally called to be separate from the world in conviction and lifestyle. So value the word. Know and defend it. Second, make sure your conviction is from the Bible and not from your bias. Make sure your conviction is from the Bible and not from your bias. It is far too easy in this day of social media to be dogmatic about political issues and about social issues that are driven more by our opinion and our desire than by verses of Scripture. That's where the Christians here in Revelation 2 started to compromise. So let's learn from Pergamos and not repeat it. Number three. Don't accept compromise. And certainly don't patronize it. Don't accept compromise and certainly don't patronize it. The Bible tells us to test the spirits. So if you hear the Holy Spirit's conviction and he is saying to you, this will not please me if you participate, then get away from it. Let's pursue the highest and holiest spiritual standards and accept nothing less. We are called to put off the old, to deny our pride, and to deny our flesh. And there is no room for compromise. Number one, know and defend the word. Number two, make sure convictions from the word. Number three, don't accept compromise. Number four, be open to fresh lessons from the Holy Spirit. I believe that we can learn and grow in new areas of faith and ministry. Listen, I've been saved how many years this summer? I've been saved 43 years this summer. That's a long time. That's the bulk of my life. And I know there are patterns and biases and traditions that I grew up with, ways of thinking about things that, that, are, that need some expansion. And as we look at the younger generations, the millennials, they're teaching us to be more caring for the poor, to seek racial unity, to, to do works of practical ministry, and to share the gospel. And you know what? Some of us old dogs need to learn some new tricks, don't we? We need to, to learn some things about how we can minister to people. And, and here, again, we come back to the example of Jesus. Jesus modeled this. So we need to make sure we are studying and living out the whole counsel of God, not just what we knew growing up and not just what makes us comfortable. So be open to fresh lessons from the Spirit. And last, number five, where there is any compromise in your life, repent immediately. Look back at the text one more time. Verse 16, therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repentance is not just an apology to be free of guilt. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry, so I don't feel bad anymore. Repentance is literally defined as turning around in a new direction and maintaining that course. It is a complete lifestyle change. Now you say, well, why is that important? Because if we don't repent, look at verse 16. Jesus says, I will make war against you. How many know that living under the care and anointing and blessing of the Lord is far better than being in battle against him? 
I don't want to wake up in the morning and have Jesus look at me and go, stubborn, hard-hearted, selfish, arrogant, compromised. I got to fight you today. I'd much rather wake up and revel in the mercy of God that he's prepared for me overnight and to say, today I get to live in the care and the anointing and the blessing of God. And the difference between that is whether we're going to compromise or live by conviction.